Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your souls. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you so much for this afternoon and for time to be in your presence. Um, Father, honestly, before you, um, we have to confess that it is this deep-seated unbelief that is still in us that you are rooting out and putting to death that make us, uh, that tempt us in many ways, to, to think that this time is no different than any other uh, time during our week. But Father, you have set aside this day that we, your children, women and men created in your image, boys and girls created in your image, would come to you and stand under your word so that we might understand who we are. Father, we praise you um, that you intend to reveal yourself today. We praise you that you intend to do that by your power. We praise you that nothing can stop your intention. Father, not our distraction, not even our willful um, selfishness, um, not even our fears, our sorrows, our joys, our anxieties. Father, you are able to send your spirit and to communicate to us and to our spirit who you are. Father, we are people of your word. And if it weren't for your word, we would be lost as to what to say to each other. Father, we would grasp at straws at what it means to be human and what it might mean that there is a God. But Father, you have given us your word. And in your word, we understand who you are. Father, we understand that when you revealed yourself, you spoke and you said, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands and forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sins. Father, we praise you that you are a God who loves mercy. You are a God who bends to show mercy to the thousandth generation. Father, I pray that the women and the men who are here today would know your forgiveness and rest in it and wallow in it. 
and rejoice in it and be fed by it. Father, that is not all that you said about yourself. You also said that you are a God who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Father, I pray that we would understand that you are a holy and a just God. Father, I pray that if there are any women or men here today who have refused to bow the knee of their hearts, to bow the pride of our minds, that you would show us where we have refused to repent. And in your kindness, because of your holiness and your justice, that you would work in us what is right and bring us to repentance and faith. Father, we praise you that you're a God who delights to show mercy, that you are a God whose justice has been made known. And Father, I pray that you would draw us into your presence now, that you would remind us who you are and what you have done, and in turn, who we are and what you have called us to do. Father, even before we hear your word preached, begin even in this hearing to prepare our hearts for the supper, to prepare our hearts to come and eat and drink of truly the richest of meals that you have provided for us in Christ. Lord Jesus, we thank you that every promise in Scripture finds its yes and its amen in you. And so, Jesus, no matter what else happens in these next few minutes, we pray that you would be exalted, that your name would be made great. Father, you know every heart that is in this room. Father, by the power of your Spirit, would you please now draw every heart toward you. Father, would you gift these, your people, with the ability to pray and to draw near to you. Father, would you make a change in our lives so that we would not be the same when we walk out as we were when we came in. Father, I thank you that you are more committed to working what is pleasing in us than we are to asking for it. And would that reality move us to fear you? Father, would we recognize your awesomeness, that you are filled with wonderful, that you are wonderful, God, and that you have provided everything we need. We thank you and we praise you. And it's with great expectation that we turn now to your word and we ask you, Father, would it bear fruit in our lives that your name would be glorified. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray all of this. Amen. We continue with our study of Peter this week. And what we have before us is Peter's articulation of what a lifestyle would be for those who live according to a living hope. Today's passage 
in today's passage, Peter articulates the lifestyle of those who live according to a living hope. As we get started, I want to ask you a question. What or whom is the greatest influence on your choice of lifestyle? What or who is the greatest influence on your choice of lifestyle? When I was a child growing up in the 80s, okay, so I was in high school, I wasn't quite a full child, but I was nonetheless not an adult. I remember watching a television show called The Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. I don't know if any of you ever watched this show. Robert Leach was the guy who, uh, uh, you know, was the narrator of the show, and he had this great British accent, and he always took you into the lifestyles of the rich and famous, and you wanted to know what was it like to live that way. And he always ended it and said, may you have champagne wishes and caviar dreams. And I read one review this week as I was reminded of that show when I thought about lifestyles where it said that the opulence and the consumption had hit its peak in the 80s. And I wondered, is that really true? Is that the case? Was, was that the height? Or would we know about some of that opulence and consumption today? When I was in high school, did you guys know, those of you who are younger, there were no coffee shops where you went and drank coffee. It didn't happen. You went to Shoney's or to another restaurant, and you might get a cup of coffee, but it was horrible, and nobody really drank it. Uh, there were no craft beers at the time. Uh, there were no uh, amazing, well, there were some amazing restaurants, but not the way they are today. And I wonder, what has taken place with our lifestyles? What governs your lifestyle? We certainly feel like we have a choice of lifestyle you know, some people were looking at Richard Branson and Jeff Bezos this week, and they were going, why in the world are these billionaires trying to get to space, and what are they doing? Is that the right use of their money? And it's easy to look at other people's lifestyles and, and point a finger and ask a question. But what is your lifestyle? I was reading this great book called Coming Apart. The author is one who is fairly controversial, so I'm not embracing the entirety of the book but one of the arguments that he makes in the book is that the upper class in our world today is large enough and influential enough that now for the first time, the choices that the upper class make create such enormous anxiety on those who will never achieve what is afforded to them. Why should we consider our lifestyle? You guys, simply by the places where we live, Newton and Wellesley, simply by the country that we live in, we are those affluent people. And what governs your choice of lifestyle? Peter speaks today, and he says that the lifestyle of those with living hope looks very specific. In fact, the apostle Peter speaks to that lifestyle it is a lifestyle that speaks to how we conduct ourselves, what we are convicted of, and what the code of our living is. Those are the three things that I want to show you. The conduct, the conviction, and the code that mark the lifestyle of those with a living hope. Why do I think we need to listen to this today? 
I think we need to listen to this today because I believe that we have drunk the juice that we get to choose how we're going to live. Peter, the Holy Spirit through Peter, corrects us, moves us toward repentance to remind us that the lifestyle of those who live with a living hope is not a choice, but it is a specific way of life. The first thing that I want you to look at with me in verses 11 through 15 is what the conduct is that marks the lifestyle of those with living hope. Again, it's verses 11 through 15, second chapter of the first, or, or Peter's first letter. 1 Peter 2, 11 through 15. We see the conduct of this lifestyle. It's first with self and then others and then society. What's the first thing that we read in verse 11 according to this lifestyle? That those who live with the living hope whom Peter calls here beloved, he urges us, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your souls. Peter speaks to sojourners and exiles, those who are not home, those who are distant. And do you know what he says there? He says, make yourselves distant from the passions of the flesh. Distance yourself from them even within you. These passions aren't necessarily, that word doesn't necessarily mark something that's negative, but whenever... The scriptures speak of the passions of the flesh. It is speaking of our fallen, inordinate desires by which we are tempted to live. Peter gives a list of those in the fourth chapter. Verse 3 if you want to look at it, but let me read them to you. He calls those passions by this list there. Sensuality. Passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. These are his list of inordinate desires that we are tempted to live according to. The Apostle Paul says of these passages of the flesh that we ought to put them to death, is what the Apostle Paul says. Peter says here, abstain from them or distance yourself from them. Because they wage war according to your soul. We've got to ask a question. How do they wage war according to our souls? Are our souls and our flesh separate? Maybe this is what we mean when we think the soul is good but the flesh is bad. But that's not at all what the Apostle Paul is talking about. Separating us as human beings in that way. It's not as if the flesh and the soul are in opposition to one another, but he is saying that the flesh and the passions of the flesh are waging war against the soul because it seeks to destroy the soul, who we are. When we identify ourselves according to the passions of our flesh, whatever those identification markers are, Sexuality, sensuality, gluttony would be another one that the Apostle Paul would put in that list. We define ourselves as human beings at base as consumers. 
and particularly as individualistic consumers. And it destroys the reality of who we are. That's what the Apostle Paul is talking about, the passions of the flesh being at war against our very souls. So he says, according to self, abstain from the passions of the flesh. And then in verse 12, he talks to us about our conduct with others. In verse 12, he simply says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. On the day of visitation. This day of Jesus' return that is most often referred to according to the time of judgment. When God will make himself known in totality and we as human beings will stand before him in judgment. The apostle Peter says that those who live according to a living hope in front of others are supposed to keep our conduct honorable. What does this mean? For us to live honorably before others is living in accord with the highest level of the purpose of something or someone. Think about that for a minute. To keep our conduct honorable is to treat ourselves and others in relationship according to the highest standard, the highest level of purpose that something or someone bears, right? He says that when we live this way, evil is going to be spoken against us. The apostle Peter says, look, you will be misunderstood because the world's definition of what it means to be a human is perverted from the definition of the scriptures of what it means to be a human. The world recognizes our individuality, but exalts that to a place of absolute importance. Versus the scripture that recognizes our individuality as image bearers of God, but joins that with our community for God's glory. We will be misunderstood when our conduct with others is kept honorable. But Peter says, when they speak evil against you, that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. We're reminded that our hope is to be fixed on that grace that will be revealed when Jesus returns, right? And then thirdly, conduct in society. We might even say political conduct in our concepts. Verses 13 and 14 says this, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. What is supposed to be our conduct towards the society in which we live? And specifically, the rulers of that society. How are we supposed to engage politically? The Apostle Peter says, be subject to the governing authorities. This is kind of an amazing thing for Peter to say, isn't it? Peter, who knows who Nero is, 
in his time. Peter, who the governor that he's most dealt with is Pilate, who put to death Christ. But here, Peter says, be subject to the governing authorities in your conduct. If so, in the first century, how about us in the United States? How about the way that we interact? Sure, it's different. We don't have dictatorship. We have democracy. We are given the right to vote. We are given the right to interact. But as we do that as citizens, foreigners, citizenship that is ultimately in heaven, we as Christians ought to be asking the question, where can I be subject? Where can I submit to ruling authorities? Instead of asking the question, where and how can I resist? There's no doubt that there will be places where we as Christians have to say, I cannot go there. I cannot do that. But Peter doesn't put that before us. Rather, he puts before us the call of conduct to be subject to the governing authorities. In each of these cases, self and others in society, Peter encourages us against radical individualism and into a lifestyle that relates with others. The purpose of this is given to us in verse 15. Look at this. For this is the will of God. It's hard to read it much clearer, right? For this is the will of God, that by doing good, and there you can define doing good by abstaining from the passions of the sinful flesh, from keeping your conduct honorable with others, and being subject to the governing authorities that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. What does our conduct do? Our living. Christians, when your conduct, because of your living hope, is marked by these realities, that illuminating goodness, as Peter talks about it, silences the teaching that Peter calls ignorant. Do you know what word is behind that word ignorant? It's the word from which we understand agnostic or that place of not knowing. We usually use the word agnostic in relationship to people who say, look, I don't trust in God. I don't believe that there's no God. I'm not atheist, but I'm agnostic. I don't know. And Peter says, your conduct of doing good illuminates and silences the teaching of those who do not know what it means to be human and who God is. Those who do not have the judgment that the scriptures give us. Our conduct as those who live according to a living hope, directly speaks to who we are as human beings. There's biblical anthropology here in the way that we live and who God is. 
That it comes clearer when we see the conviction that Peter encouraged us us toward. There is a conduct that marks those who live according to a living hope, but there's a conviction that underlies that conduct, and that's what's here in verse 16. So look at verse 16 with me. This is the conviction. He says this, Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. The conviction of those who live according to a living hope is that we are free. But you have to stop and ask yourself, what does freedom mean? If I call you and want to hang out with you and I ask you the question, hey, are you free tonight? We mean by saying that we have no obligations. Yes, I'm free tonight. I'd love to see you. I'd love to be together. But freedom doesn't mean no obligation. It doesn't mean a lack of responsibility. But freedom here means the ability to live as we were intended to live. Being set free. Peter says that this freedom is not a cover-up for evil. This freedom, this, this ability to live in the midst of responsibility as we were created to be, it's not a cover-up for evil. It's not what we might refer to as greasy grace. You want to know what word Peter uses for cover-up here? It's the same word that can be used for forgiveness. It's not the idea of saying, look, I, I believe in that conduct, but I'm going to live whatever way that I want because if God is a forgiving God, then I will be forgiven. I can do whatever I want. Peter says, this freedom is not so that you can have a cover-up for doing evil. But he says, rather, it's so that we might live as servants of God. As slaves of God is one way to understand this word. This word means those who are totally under the control of another. (laughs) That we are totally under the control of God. Bob Dylan is the one, as we all know, who famously said, you got to serve somebody. But if you go back and listen to that song, he never says why that's the case. He just observes humanity that we have to serve somebody, but he never says why. Peter does. Peter tells us what it really means to be human. That human beings, all of us, are created to serve. Because human beings are born in the image of God, we bear the image of God. Every woman and man and girl and boy in this room, you bear the image of God. Therefore, your very nature is one of service to an image, of portraying that image. And it is an incredible call. It's an incredible call on your life and on my life. And we have been redeemed from the lie and the myth of our own self-serving individualism to the end that we would serve God in this world. Everything about us in service to Him. The Scripture tells us that the moment that we as human beings believed the lie of the serpent that our very 
desires were morphed and twisted and enslaved to sin. But Peter reminds us that's not who you are anymore. You're a holy nation. You're a royal priesthood. You're a people of God's own possession because you have been redeemed from slavery to sin by the blood of Jesus. Not just the blood of a lamb, but the lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You have been redeemed so that you might be servants. And as Paul says in that preparation quote, slaves to righteousness. For us human beings, this is our briar patch. You know what I'm talking about, right? Brer Rabbit in the briar patch. This is where we belong. This is where we thrive because it's who we are created to be. We are slaves to righteousness. Freedom for us is not a lack of responsibility, but rather the ability to live as we were created to live. One way of understanding righteousness is all things rightly ordered, the way it's supposed to be. There's another Jewish word for this, a Hebrew word, shalom. All things rightly related. This is what we have been set free, the lifestyle into which we have been given new birth. And the last thing that I want you to see is what the code is that marks the lifestyle of those with living hope. This is what we read in verse 17. And it's going to be these verses that become our jumping off point into the rest of Peter. What is the code for our lifestyle, those who live according to a living hope? Does anybody know the marine code? I bet you know it. If you don't know it, you will recognize it as soon as I tell it to you. Semper Fi. Semper Fidelis, right? Always faithful is what that code is. We remember that. What is our code of ethics? All things rightly ordered that determines our conduct that marks our lifestyle as those who have a living hope. Peter gives it to us in verse 17. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. I want you to stop and think about these with me just for a minute as we close. I want to ask you a question. When you see others, is the first thing that comes to your mind their immeasurably valuable identity as an image bearer of God? Or is it what they may or may not be able to do for you? Whether they may or may not vote the way you do whether they may or may not look the way you do. Listen, our individualism is awesome. It is true that human beings, like snowflakes, there's no two of them alike, right? We've heard that. And it's true. But it's not so that we would live individualistic lives. 
But because God in his sovereign providence said that the way that he is going to make himself known is by the creative brilliance of this distinctiveness of absolutely every human being created in his image and all of our glorious difference. To honor everyone is to recognize whether you agree with the choices that they make or not, that they are immeasurably valuable because they bear the image of God. And the question for you is, is this your first instinct? If it's not, it's an opportunity to repent. Father, forgive me for the way that I look at your image bearers and use them for myself. That I don't seek their good, but rather use them to seek mine. And we've already confessed our sin and admitted that our sin can be both individual and corporate. We, we say it every week. But if the first of our code is honor, the second of our code is love, the brotherhood. Love, the brotherhood. This is loving those with whom we are joined together as sisters and brothers in Christ. As Peter calls us living stones among whom the Holy Spirit dwells. That he is here. The question that I have for us in this is, are we at CTK known for our radical love for each other in such a way that it moves people to Jesus? Jesus says that love is defined by laying down his life for us. You guys, our community ought to be so radical in the way in which we love one another that other people look at this community and go, unbelievable, Jesus must be real. I've never seen human beings treat each other that way. What is something that you have deprived yourself of for the love of this body? Our code is not just to honor everyone, but to love the brotherhood, the fellow beloved, the sojourner. It's not just that for all things to be rightly ordered, but it's also fear God. We've talked about the fear of the Lord already with Peter. Peter loves this idea. And the fear of the Lord is the reality that the Lord is the center of everything. The center of our lives. It is that the Lord is filled with awe. That he is awe-filled. That he is filled with wonder. That he is wonderful. That his power... Has the, is the power to soften our hearts. That our lives are oriented around Him as He reveals Himself to be. What is your life oriented around? Maybe you say, Bradley, I don't know. If I really had to ask that question, I'm not sure what I would say. Can I say that my life is oriented around God 
as he revealed himself in Scripture. The psalmist writes, as does Solomon in Proverbs, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And those who fear the Lord have a good understanding in this life. You guys, we still have to make decisions by faith. But fearing the Lord is the way we gain wisdom. Our code so far is honor, love, fear. And listen to what Peter does with the emperor at the end. He says, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the emperor. Honor those governing authorities over you. We are not to fear the governing authorities over us. We are not to love them in the way that we love the church. Nor are we to worship them or hate them or even generally resist them. Peter has already reminded us that our presence before that governing authority ought to be asking ourselves, where can we submit to demonstrate the love of Christ? The, uh, the emperor is deserving of our submission. Peter is the one who stood with Jesus when the chief priests and the Pharisees came to trick Jesus. Do you remember this story? They wanted to see if Jesus was going to be faithful to the scripture or faithful to the empire. Do you remember what they said? Jesus, are we supposed to pay taxes? And Jesus asked for a coin. And he said, come, give me a coin. And he holds up a denarius. And he says, whose image is on this coin? And they rightly answered, the image of Caesar is on the coin. And Jesus said at that point, then give to Caesar what is Caesar's but give to God what is God's. You have the coin with the image of Caesar, and then you have God, but where's the other image? What was Jesus saying? Jesus was saying, you human being are the image of God. Next time you look in the mirror, I want you to stop. And I want to ask you this question. What do you see in the mirror? You are looking at an image bearer of God. When you look at other people, are you more focused about something other than them, than their identity? The next time you look at another human being in the eyes, what do you see? They are an image of God. So our code of our lifestyle is honor, love, fear, and honor. There's a lifestyle that goes along 
with having a living hope. There's conduct to it. There's conviction in it. And there's even a code. And Peter says, this is what it means to have a living hope. Please pray with me as we come to the table.